and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And as they're headed that way, let me invite you to open um, your Bibles to Psalm 73. Before I just completely jump in, I'd like to uh, just make our body aware of a couple things. Um, One of those being that we uh, have a trip planned um, as a church to uh, Belize this summer. And we got a couple spots left there, so if you feel like God might be moving in your heart to join us on that trip, um, you would see myself or Reynolds, uh, he's in the back there, if you see him after the service, he'll fill you in on what that looks like. We're partnering with a uh, mission down there called Go Belize, and um, we'll be doing some work, uh, some construction work, and also uh, sharing the gospel and um, telling the gospel story while we're there. Uh, End of June, uh, through the first couple in uh, first couple days in July. It's a one-week trip. Um, I was, uh, yesterday, I was uh, reading a little bit and preparing for sermon and uh, thinking about Mother's Day, and I uh, found this quote by Ann Voskamp. You might know her. She's the one who wrote Jesus' storybook Bible. I like this. She said, a mother's, I think I have this on the screen maybe. She said, a mother's labor and delivery never ends. And you never stop having to remember to breathe. I thought that was really good. Um, We're so thankful for our moms um, and for all of those um, in this maternal spirit that have guided us, especially in our Christian faith. So uh, last week we started a four-week series called the By Name Initiative. And you got those little cards in your um, connection guide today. And uh, we are encouraging you to fill out some names of people that you're praying for. Call it our top five on the back, that people that are unchurched or lost or going through some kind of uh, crisis in their life, that you would regularly, for the remainder of these next three weeks, pray for them every day. Now, a couple of you turned those in to us in the baskets, um, and we prayed for them, even though we don't know them. But the goal is for you to take that home and put that in a place where you will uh, be reminded to pray for them again and again. And that initiative, as you know, we've been walking through the book of Exodus uh, for a couple months now. We're going to have a little break, finish out this little series, and then we'll pick back up in June with the uh, Ten Commandments. But this was really birthed out of uh, Jason and I kind of feeling like our church just seemed to be walking through the motions a little bit. And, um, and maybe it's a reflection even in my own heart. We just kind of get so caught up with life So we're talking about this a few weeks ago, how we would love to see more and more people come to Christ through our church. And so we were going to do a little series on evangelism. And so as I thought through and prayed through that for my own family, for our our church, I kept coming back to the fact that evangelism is not just something we do in some robotic or inauthentic way, sharing our faith with others. It has to start from joy. Joy in the very depths of our soul, overflowing life, abundant life as Jesus called it, peace and confidence and boldness and our witness all comes from spending time with him, being satisfied with him, our soul being satisfied with God. And that led me to Psalm 73. 
Psalm 73 ends with this <clears throat> little phrase. Uh, this is a Psalm of Asaph. It ends with this little phrase of evangelism. It says there in verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This like picture of this outward testimony of this worship leader Asaph saying it ends in evangelism, but we go through some, uh, some ups and downs before we get there. So I want to look at that um, together. Got really two points today. Distraction leads to disillusionment, and adoration, I mean, and attention leads to adoration. Distraction leads to disillusionment, but attention leads to adoration. Let's be honest, we live in a pretty distracted culture, don't we? In a 2017 article in The Atlantic, David Carr talks about this cultural phenomenon. He actually wrote this article in 2008. Imagine how things have gotten uh, even more distracted since then. He wrote an article or a book called Is Google Making Us Stupid? And in it he writes, and I think I have this on the screen, and what the web seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the web distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Isn't that true? Think about our culture and where we've gotten, right? My mind can't handle near the amount of deep thought I used to could. We're losing our capacity for concentration and contemplation. Even as I was writing this sermon, like the need to be distracted by everything else. And some of it's our own doing. Like I kept reaching for my phone to to just check things, you know, I just needed to, and I had to put it away, and then I would reach for it, and it wouldn't be there, and I just was so aware of our knee-jerk reaction to this stream of particles he's talking about, and maybe this is not you, but I think this defines our culture really well today. It's dangerous, right, that we don't have the capacity for concentration and contemplation anymore, and it's dangerous for the modern society, certainly, but even more dangerous for the Christian who through concentration and contemplation on God's word and the direction of the Holy Spirit, that's where we find our real joy and peace. To set this up a little more, sociologists describe the current culture as the use of the fourth screen. He talks about how newspapers were the first screen. A hundred years ago, the newspapers were written in a way that would grab our attention with, you know, people uh, peddling them on the, as cars would go by and uh, with some kind of headline, you know, you need to read this, this is important. That was the first screen and then that morphed into the radio and people would gather around the radio as a family and they would listen to shows and then that one day was replaced by the TV. You remember when TVs were literally a piece of furniture, maybe in your uh, uh, parents' or grandparents' house, literally a piece of furniture that everything was kind of, and even then, we didn't have constant, we didn't have DVRs, we didn't have constant, I was talking to Claire the other day, I said, do you remember, yeah, I was telling her, you know, when dad was growing up, TV, the, the broadcasting like went out at 10.30 or 11, you remember that? If you got to that and it would like show a, you know, a flag and a plane taking off, and it was like, on a Saturday night, it was the worst. You're like, oh, we're done? Like, it's over now. I got to go find the VCR tape to watch or something. The third screen would have been the computer as it has developed. But still, it, you had to go and sit down somewhere and experience that. But the fourth screen now is our smartphones. And it is always with us. 
this constant deluge of information and entertainment always right there in our pockets trying to keep us from concentrating or contemplating anything deeper than this, just this array of particles Carr talks about. We don't have the time to concentrate and contemplate the things of God. At least without our thoughts being hijacked by an advertisement, a text message, an email, reminder app. I thought this would be uh, great and help my wife out. So, um, so she didn't always have to have the phone with her. The kids always had it or something. And so I bought her the Apple Watch. But that seems to be even worse, right? Because it's factory default is that everything comes right to your wrist. Every news story, every weather update, every text message, every, you know, uh, reminder from every app. Now, why I'm talking about this as part of uh, an evangelism series is because without the power and wonder of God capturing our hearts, evangelism will always be forced and inauthentic. It won't come from the very depths of joy and our hearts. And we see a great example of this in Psalm 73. That first idea of distraction leading to disillusionment. This psalm, written by Asaph, you're probably familiar with his name. Is, he was one of the most skilled worship leaders for the Hebrew people. His impact lasted centuries and centuries after, after he passed. You read through First and Second Chronicles, and every big thing, long after Asaph had passed away, it was his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons that would be there to dedicate the temple. Or remember when they had lost the law of God and they found it again. They called the sons of Asaph to come in. So he had this huge legacy. This guy loved the Lord. He was, he was uh, one of the worship leaders with David himself, this man after God's own heart who wrote most of the other psalms. And we see this raw and honest example of what can happen when we take our eyes off of God. I, I love the honesty of psalms. I love that for generations, people have actually sang these psalms. This is a real life story of how a man takes his eyes off of God and loses his grip and his focus. He says of himself nearly slipping away. Would you read it with me in Psalm 73? <clears throat> says in verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And we kind of get an insight into Asaph. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. We see right off the bat, his first mistake is he's focusing on the prosperity of the wicked, which quickly leads to comparison and envy. His focus was not on the wicked themselves, necessarily. He was focusing on the prosperity of the wicked, the flashy things in their life that he wanted. And this is still today the battleground of our joy. When we, when we lend ourselves to comparison, when we lend ourselves to looking at others and envying what they have, it soon destroys our joy. And it seems like all of social media is just kind of wrapped around this idea. Culture is always trying to hijack the source of our joy. Think about the 24-hour news cycle. There is always breaking news, always breaking news. It's urgent. You've got to listen to what's going on now. You've got to know what's happening. I've got to know. 
And they work really on this idea of the sensational, the controversial, and the emotional. The sensational, controversial, and emotional. Literally, next time you watch the news, I want you to see how they do this. It's the sensational news, the controversial things that have happened, the emotional things. Tragic accidents, the policy of world leaders, stock report numbers. A lot of it based in fear. And all there to elicit the emotional response to the sensational and controversial. Think about it. When's the last time you turned on the news and the newscaster said, you know what? It's a pretty good day in planet Earth today. No real controversy happening. As a matter of fact, we're just going to wrap it up and go home. Here's a little video of uh, cute puppies to um, occupy your attention. Or that the news would report of the local man at Walmart helping a lady load their car. 12 kids being officially adopted and out of foster care. Bluebell ice cream on sale. That's the news cycle I'm up for, but that's not what we see, is it not? And I'm not saying you shouldn't watch the news or be informed, but I do want us to be aware of what's going on. Psalms 46 tells us to be still and know that he is God. That there was this prolonged time. There would be this prolonged moment, and certainly on their Sabbath, but there was a little bit of Sabbath every day for the Hebrew people where they would stop and think and discern and contemplate. The very Shema was placed there to fill our mind and thoughts. That on, you know, as you, as you go out and as you come in and as you pray and as you sit down and in the morning and in the evenings, we're supposed to be talking about the things of God and how great God is. We're supposed to be uh, meditating on and musing about what God can do. And yet if you're like me, our mind so is focused around all of these other somewhat shallow things and we miss the deep things that God is trying to show us. This distraction quickly leads to distortion. Our heart is incrementally seduced from the things of God to the things of the world. This is what happened to Asaph. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> Talk about distortion. They have no struggles, as if that's true. For, the pains, uh, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Meaning that they're healthy and beautiful. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is the number one goal of the enemy, to get us eyes off of God and fixated on temporal things that don't really matter all that much in the end, to get us literally to waste our lives away by chasing after things that don't matter. Think about this new cultural concept of binge-watching, right? It's kind of a new thing, binge-watching. Netflix has actually hired people, uh, social marketers, that they would come up and make this just a natural thing in our lives. I can't imagine growing up, my dad ever letting me watch whole seasons of anything. Can you imagine that we make time? I was talking to a guy the other day about what he was doing this weekend. And he said, oh, I'm just going to binge watch a show all weekend. This is my Netflix weekend. And this is sad. And we're all guilty of it probably on some level. Because so much of our life's vision is formed what we give, by what we give our attention to. The average American watches at least 12 hours of Netflix a week. If you serve the poor for 12 hours a week, do you think it would affect you? Do you think it would stir your heart? What if you mentored kids with no fathers? What if you helped care for veterans that struggle with mental illnesses? 
12 hours a week, would that affect you? Would it shape you in any way? Of course it would. What if you use those hours to read Christ-exalting biographies like of George Mueller or Adoniram Judson or J. Hudson Taylor or Elizabeth Elliot? You think those things might shape you 12 hours a week to look and, at these people who exalted Christ with their life? You think that would inspire you, encourage you? Okay, what about 12 hours of Netflix? You think you're going to grow in your faith and power after you've invested that kind of time? And I'm not trying to hate on that. I, what I want to do is to raise our awareness of what's going on. Slowly and slowly, we are so distracted of the deep things of God, which leads to distortion and ultimately finds its way to discouragement. Look at verse 11, as Asaph says, and they say, how can I know God? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. Asaph is discouraged. He's talking to God. God, the wicked don't even care. They don't care anything about you or walking by your ways or following your precepts. They're just doing whatever they want to do. And they're just getting richer. They're having more fun. I'm over here try to follow, trying to follow your word and repent and do the right thing. It says in verse 14, and all I am is stricken and rebuked. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, He's so discouraged. I have to say some of this message is birthed out of my own heart. I've been walking through a season of discouragement my, myself and I couldn't really figure it out. I called my buddy this week, um, Pastor in Dallas, Aaron Clayton's been here many times and I said, hey man, I just need you to pray for me. I've just been in one of these funks for a couple of weeks and if you know me uh, and probably you too, we all have space to walk, you'd be in a funk for a day or two, maybe three, but this is going on two or three weeks. There's this, this underlying emotion of just discouragement that's just wrapping my heart up. And I tried to pray through it. I tried to work through it. I tried to, all the remedies I normally do, I called Aaron. And he said, well, you know, let's just go through the checklist. He said, well, what's your, when's the last time you Sabbathed? Like really Sabbathed. And I'm like, oh, man, yeah, don't ask me that. I don't have time to Sabbath. I got too much work to do. He's like, oh, yeah, work how much you've been working. I was like, I don't know, you know, 16 hours a day probably. Okay. How's your health, he asked me. Well, it's not good. I got to take a pill every four hours just so I can breathe normally. He's like, oh, that's, that stinks. What, 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 about, what about your uh, relationships? What about, you know, just connection with good friends? When's the last time you just hung out with a friend that gives you life and you just went and played golf or something? I was like, oh, man, six months? I don't know, a long time. So what about your time with Jesus? Have you had just like real, you know, where you push through, you reserve the whole morning just to sit with him? When's the last time that's happened? I said, well, that's, that's been a while. He's like, well, I think you know what you need to do. Don't you hate friends like that? Don't you want friends that would just kind of wallow in your self-pity with you for a little bit and be like, oh, you're right, man, your life sucks. Yeah, it's just terrible. That's what's going on with Asaph. He's looking at everything around him and he gets to the point where he's so discouraged. Ultimately, it leads to disobedience. Distortion, distraction, discouragement, ultimately, 
If we don't stop, it finds itself in disobedience. When you're walking with God and spending time with him and your faith is being renewed and strengthened, it's normally not then when you're tempted to sin. It's when you're physically exhausted and you've mentally given everything you can and you're spiritually dry. That's when the temptation to despair and sin is right around the corner. When you're beat down by focusing on all the wrong things. Maybe I should say that just ignoring the main things, temptation comes along and you just give into it. He talks about this in verse 21. He says, my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Animalistic tendency is what he's saying. That's the kind of guy I was. I was just reacting to everything. It was this glandular response. Ultimately, all of this leads to disillusionment. He says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And this is a worship leader, one of the greatest worship leaders. This is the guy that knew how to connect to the heart of God. He knew how to lead people into worship of God. And maybe, maybe his time of serving, maybe he's on a sabbatical. I don't know what's happening, but he's, he's kind of out of the way and he's lost and he wants a reset. He's apathetic and discouraged and disobedient. If it can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. And it will happen to us if we let our distraction remain. But church, God has something better for us. Not just does distraction lead to disillusionment, we see that, but attention leads to adoration. Look again at verse 16. When I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me such a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. The whole psalm shifts here. The whole first part was about how this... Uh, cycle of self-pity he was in, discouragement, despondency, despair. And then in verse 17, it says that he had some kind of wake-up call by going into the sanctuary. Something, <clears throat> excuse me, broke through his self-pity and woke him up. Church, there's something so powerful just about gathering with the saints, lifting up your voices in worship, moving your attention from your loudest problems that you've been dealing with all week, and putting your focus on a God who says, I have everything in control. This is why pastors, this is why we want you to stay so connected to the local church. Not because we need you to show up for our attendance numbers. Because we know that you need the weekly reminder that God is bigger than your problems. We, need, we know that you need the reminder. We need you to get your eyes up and focus on the things that are worth worshiping and focusing on. Attaching your attention to the right thing. I can't tell you how many times my soul has been distracted, so distracted, only to find that gathering with the saints and worshiping with my faith family and partaking in communion is what I need the most. Along the way, I, I've learned just to keep showing up. There's such a powerful principle that you just keep showing up. Asking God to speak to you. If we aren't careful, the rhythms of culture are going to pull us away like drifting on an ocean. We're going to get in at one spot and just having fun on the waves. We're going to look up and not know where we are and we're a mile down the beach. 
culture will do this to us. Slowly and surely, it will seek to capture our attention. We'll be like the guy on the jet ski zooming past, ignoring all the deep things that God wants to share with us and show us. William James says it this way, when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. When we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. Everything around us demanding our attention, what will we focus on? Look at verse 26 for a minute with me. Just that first part, he says, my flesh and and my heart may fail. That's the definition of disillusionment I want to us to work with. Do you see the little three parts of that phrase? My flesh, my heart may fail. My flesh, that means there's a physical component to disillusionment or hopelessness, isn't there? The body weakens, you're overcome with fatigue, there's a sense of weariness and sluggishness to it, you just can't seem to get it going. Secondly, in my heart, that means there's just an emotional, spiritual dimension to losing hope. Our hearts are discouraged and dejected and gloomy and burned out. Maybe you identify with this. And the third may fail. The the word actually means to come to an end, to run out, to be exhausted of resources. Like your life is a tank and it's filled with water that you need for refreshment and somebody pulls the plug at the bottom and it all just runs out. The word literally means to come to an end, to be exhausted, literally to or depleted. So here we see this harsh reality of Asaph where he says that disillusionment and hopelessness have overcome him and will overcome any believer unless we learn to fight against it but look at the next part and we've talked about this before in the book of Ephesians and all through the New Testament my my flesh and my heart may fail what's the next two words there in verse 26 but God studying this yesterday in my front room, and I got to this. This part was really not even in my notes. This, 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 but God. When we get to the end of ourselves, but God. When we're overcome with discouragement, but God. When we're proud, proud and arrogant, but God. Notice it says, not just may fail, but will fail. It's translated in yours and my translation as may fail, but that's not even in the Hebrew word at all. It just says my heart, uh, my flesh and my heart fail. There's this man, the cork's pulled out the bottom of his life. His heart and his flesh are just about depleted. And he says, perhaps with his very last breath, but God. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. One of the problems we run into, and we've talked about this before, is we listen to ourselves too much. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, don't listen to yourself, preach to yourself. Part of walking with God is agreeing with God against yourself. We see this is what Asaph is doing. He's fighting for joy again, but God, he's reminding himself, self, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. So the point is that whenever there's hopelessness or discouragement, 
likely founded in unbelief, that's when we fight, right? It's unbelief that puts up no resistance. It's unbelief that doesn't take the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and fight. It's unbelief that says my body is shot, my heart almost dead, and for whatever reason, I'm just going to give up. But it's faith that rises up within us that says, but God, I will trust in God even though my strength is gone. And God has not left us to fight this battle against unbelief alone. In Psalms 19, 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word of God has been given to us to revive our very souls. The saints, our souls need to be restored and revived on a continuous basis. That means seasons of hopelessness and disillusionment will come. Difficulty, some of the hardest seasons of life will come. And the word of God has been given to us to restore and to revive us. One great example of this that fits Mother's Day so well is this lady named Susanna Wesley. You may have heard of John and Charles Wesley, the fathers of uh, the modern Methodist movement. Susanna was the mother, mother of two boys that literally changed the landscape of Christianity in both England and in the U.S., they lived in a small village in Epworth, England. There's a famous picture or story that you may have heard or even seen of this lady with her kitchen apron pulled over her head while a dozen little kids run around her in the small living room. I want to tell you a little bit more about her story. Susanna delivered 19 children, but nine of them, including two sets of twins died in infancy another was accidentally smothered in the night by a nurse as Susanna recovered from labor and delivery earlier in the day this is a lady who's experienced incredible heartache she homeschooled all of her kids and they were the some of the best educated within a hundred miles and not just like barely survived uh, she taught them Latin and Greek they were fluent in both those languages you know, like we do, right? All of them could read, not just English, but Latin and Greek by age five. Growing up, Susanna was one of 25 kids. And feeling the pain of neglect, she developed a rotating schedule for her kids where she would spend at least an hour after dinner, one with one-on-one -on -one time with each kid. And she would kind of, every kid day. Her husband Samuel uh, was a pastor in the Anglican church who was hated by his parishioners. He took a few political stands. Twice they burned down his parsonage because they hated him so much. Hey, if you don't like my sermons, you have to burn down my house. Just let just, you can just go find another church. It'll be fine. <laughs> Little John Wesley was almost killed in the fire, something that he mentioned uh, many times in his sermons. Some of the parishioners hated him so much, they went and cut all of the uh, udders of their cows so that they could have milk. On more than one occasion, they burnt their little farm fields where they raised vegetables. They had a very difficult marriage. They didn't get along. They disagreed on almost everything, Susanna and Samuel, from politics to how to raise the kids. Her husband was bad at managing money and on at least one occasion spent months in a debtor's prison. He was also working on commentary on the book of Job, and he would 
spend weeks and weeks at a time away from home to work on it, leaving Susanna to raise all these kids, to care for the home and to cultivate the small farm by herself. She didn't think when he was away they would bring in a guest speaker and she didn't think that the kids were learning enough of the Bible from the church that they were attending. So she started an additional Bible study on Sunday afternoon for the kids. She did such a good job at teaching the scriptures in a way that they could be understood. Neighbors began to ask if they could come with their kids and that little Bible study grew to over 200 people gathered around her porch to listen to her teach. Early in her life, she promised God that she would never spend any more time in leisure and entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study. Even amid the most complex and busy years of her life as a mother, reads in her biography, that she still scheduled at least two hours a day for fellowship with God and time in his word. And she adhered to that schedule faithfully. The challenge was finding a place in this small house to actually get away from the 10 or so kids that were running around to actually spend time with God. Any moms in here identify? Her solution was to bring her Bible to her favorite chair, to throw her long apron up over her head, forming this sort of tense. And every kid in the house was warned, when the apron's over mom's head, don't talk to me. I'm talking with God. The kids respected that. They knew well to respect this signal. When she was under the apron, she was talking to God. There in the privacy of her little tent, she interceded for her husband and children. She sowed seeds of the gospel and the deep mysteries of God and the scriptures. This holy discipline equipped her with a thorough and profound knowledge of God. She wasn't on a jet ski zooming through life even though she had more responsibilities than many of us could even imagine. And yet she knew this principle of distraction leading to disillusionment but attention leading to adoration. I mentioned her sons, John and Charles Wesley. John was the great revival preacher who preached to over 100,000 people in his ministry. He was close to 70. He preached to 30,000 people in one setting. That was that without microphone or amplification. John was asked who his greatest influence in his life was, and he said, it was my mom. Charles, his brother, was the Hillsong or Bethel of their day. This dude wrote more than 9,000 hymns. Again, he gave testament to his mom being the greatest influence of his life. Both of them would speak about that time under the apron that happened no matter what. Let's finish Psalm 73. This is where Asaph ends back up. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You see his distortion clearing up. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. When Abraham's focus was on the right things, joy returned in his heart and the fruit of his lips was praise to God and it was ultimately evangelism. I like how it ends there that because God is my refuge and because of my nearness to him, this is such a good thing, he says, because I will tell of your works. The problem in the church today is not necessarily that we don't have an evangelistic style or tool, and we're going to talk about some more of those things in the coming weeks. It's that ultimately we're just not very impressed with Jesus anymore. We've lost the source of our joy, and we're just walking through life. Church, I mean, part of a church... Following Jesus is just one more thing that orbits around our busy lives when it should be the center of our lives. Paul would say it this way in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul uses this imperative word, this word that requires action for us that we have to literally set our minds on the things that are above. We have to remind ourselves of the passing temporal nature of the things that are all around us, the social media posts, the news, the advertisements, everything crying out for our attention. And we have to literally block those things out and focus on this very thing that we would set our mind on the things that are above, things that are eternal, investing our lives because of what God's done in us, investing our lives in people, in the broken, in the last, the lost, the least, just as Jesus did. And this reminder, because I like that verse three, for you have died. The old Jew is dead. And your life now is hidden with Christ and God. On the first anniversary of Charles Wesley's conversion, he wrote a song, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues. If you grew up in traditional church setting, you might have heard it. We're going to sing it in a minute. In the song, he just gets completely wrapped up in this very thought of thinking about how great God is to rescue us through the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give us some time at the end of this to do that very thing. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads, close your eyes, and if you would, if you would reach out from the very depths of your soul, just do an a- accurate assessment on where you are. Maybe you're like the, the guy on the jet ski, zooming through life so quickly that you're not, you don't have time to contemplate and concentrate on the things that are going around when's the last time the deep things inside of you cried out for the deep things of God and they were met together many in this room may have just been playing religious games for a long time and today's a day for you to cross the line of faith I would love if you'd make that decision today As the Holy Spirit leads, you follow his direction. I'm going to be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for examples like Susanna Wesley, who 
through one of the most difficult lives that I've read about in recent time. She just pursued your heart. And in such a small house with her apron over her head, I can just see it just communing with the God of the universe through the person and work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit alive, leading her to truth. And I pray that for our people. I pray that for us, that we wouldn't be so distracted and disillusioned. Or that our kids would grow up with this memory of mom and dad pursuing the heart of God. Lord, I pray that we would have such joy in our hearts because of what you're doing, that our hearts would be filled and that we would share your love with others as just a natural response. We're doing incredible work in us. It's in Jesus' name. Pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Just a few minutes, Adam's gonna sing at over 4,000 tongues and I invite you to join in as we close out and worship together.